Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. This is the conversation that we love to have about food, hunger, passion, making a difference in the world. And it's a conversation that often leads us to topics involving poverty, um, because hunger is really a symptom of the deeper issue of poverty. And today we're going to be talking about child poverty uh, with two experts that I'm really excited to have on. Um, we've had a lot of amazing guests on this podcast. Um, Jason DePerl from the New York Times. To me, you're the biggest celebrity we've ever had. I just uh, love your work, admire it. I feel like it's changing the world. Um, and every time you have an article in the Times, I scrutinize it for days and share it widely. So thank you for being with us. I think you need to up your um, celebrity uh, invitations, but thank you for having me. No, I'm thrilled to have you. And Renee Ryberg uh, from Child Trends, uh, equally amazing uh, organization that I've known for a long time because uh, one of our alums at Share Strength, Jody Franklin, uh, does communications work there now. She was with us in the earliest days. And um, I'm really interested to talk to both of you about this collaboration between uh, child trends and Jason. But Renee, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to share a little bit of information about both of you before we get uh, too deeply in. Uh, Jason's been a reporter for the New York Times for, um, I guess, as long as I can remember. Um, he's also a recipient of the prestigious George, George Polk Award, the author of uh, several books, American Dream, Three Women, Ten Kids, and a Nation's Drive to End Welfare. Uh, and more recently, a good provider is one who leaves, one family and migration in the 21st century. Uh, and Renee, doctor, I should be saying Dr. Renee Ryberg, uh, a research scientist in education uh, research who focuses on the intersection of poverty uh, and education. And her work uh, has really centered on child poverty, uh, the ingredients that drive it, uh, its consequences and policy solutions. Um, I'm uh, really interested in uh, a set of articles that have been published in the New York Times that represent a collaboration between the two of you, particularly around uh, the impact that the uh, child tax credit had on uh, reducing child poverty uh, in this country. Uh, but one of the things I want to start with, uh, Jason, is something I saw on your uh, webpage because it goes to the kind of the, you know, the, the very beginning of the origin story. You've got an author's note to your newest book, A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, and you write that I was interested in poor people before I was interested in journalism. I wrote my first story when I was 10, a poem about a neighbor on food stamps. <laughs> in college, uh, I spent yeah. a summer in India. And when I came back, a visiting journalist gave a talk about covering poverty. And suddenly I knew what I wanted to do. Getting hired to cover social policy for the New York Times felt like playing center field for the Yankees. I told you you were a celebrity. Center field for the Yankees is, is celebrity status, man. But the, but the point is this interest of yours goes way back. And I, I guess I, I'll let you uh, update that and put it in your own words um, uh, in terms of amending the author's note. But tell, tell us a little bit more about where it started. Um, wow, Billy, I didn't think you were going to go there. Um, I feel a little, a little on the spot. Um, I, I did write a poem about uh, a neighbor on food stamps uh, when I was 10 years old. Um, I grew up in two different places, and I think that may have sharpened my early interest in class. Um, I grew up in a working class neighborhood in Bridgeport, Connecticut uh, through sixth grade. 
And then I moved to Jacksonville, Florida, um, and uh, went from a public school to a private school. So I had two, in Bridgeport, I was probably one of the more fortunate kids in the school. And in Florida, I was one of the less fortunate kids in the school. I was there on financial aid. So I think as an early, you know, throughout my childhood, I think those contrasting experiences gave me a early awareness of of class differences in America that over time developed into uh, an interest in poverty and social policy. And you've been writing about it for how long now, Jason? Well, I've been writing about it for 40 years and or so, and um, about 33 of those at the New York Times. Incredible. And Renee, uh, you know, when I look at the work of child trends, I have focused uh, particularly on the work related to uh, child poverty and uh, child hunger over the years. But the uh, I feel like one of the amazing things about child trends is that you go uh, deep on a, on a lot of issues, but there's also a tremendous amount of breadth to uh, the issues that you research. Tell us a little bit about uh, the mission of Child Trends and how you ended up there. Yeah, so Child Trends, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization. And I like to say we study any and everything related to kids. Um, and that's really child and f- families as a whole. Um, so ranging from early childhood and education to the child welfare system, the juvenile justice system, youth development, transition to adulthood. We, you're right, we do, we do a wide breadth of things, anything that affects child development. In terms of how I got here, I've actually been at Child Trends um, 12 years, quite a while, um, and I started right out of undergrad. So Jason and I have known each other for probably two years at this point, and I'd never heard his origin story in terms of how he got interested in studying uh, poverty, but we actually have fairly similar stories here. So I mostly grew up in a small town of about 3,000 people named after Daniel Boone's cousin um, in Western Maryland. And there, there was a pretty wide socioeconomic diversity um, and it was basically divided by where my friend's parents worked. A handful commuted to either DC or Baltimore and then the rest worked locally uh, in the local economy, either in manufacturing or farming or service industries. And as I went off to college, I kind of recognized these stark differences in the the trajectories that my classmates were were taking. And it was, you know, really heavily tied to their class and which in my mind was tied to where their parents worked. Um, So I was also interested in studying this transition to adulthood um, and, and class differences in poverty from a pretty early age. So I started a child trends right out of undergrad, um, there was a brief interlude where I left and went to grad school, um, and I'm back. Well, and this, um, this collaboration between the two of you to me feels like, uh, you know, a match made in heaven, kind of the, the perfect match. And as I said, I've, I've paid attention to Jason's writing for many years to the work of child trends. And, uh, more recently over the last couple of years, there have been stories about, uh, and research about the impact of the child tax credit. And I was, uh, to me, it was so powerful because 
uh, at Share Strength, we believe that hunger, particularly childhood hunger, is a solvable problem, that we have the resources in this country to solve it. And I think the same could be true of child poverty. And uh, for a little while, it seemed like with the child tax credit, uh, in effect, that we were we were actually proving that. And I think back to your story of, and, and research of September in 2022 about the share of children living in poverty, going from 28% to 11%. Uh, Jason, I was kind of teasing you about being a celebrity, but in all seriousness, uh, I thought those stories were just uh, among the most important things that have been published in years in terms of uh, so much bad news in the world. And here's a piece of news about a problem that many people thought was intractable and a problem that uh, has a devastating impact on kids around this country. And you together, based on the research and your writing and reporting, Jason, we're talking about the absolutely incredible progress that it has been made. Uh, we're going to get to that in a minute, but just let's start by love to hear each of your take on how did this collaboration between Child Trends and and uh, the New York Times and Jason DeParle begin? I think we had begun conversations before the pandemic about um, collaborating on um, a project uh, about child poverty in which Child Trends would do um, some original data analysis, and we would try to storyify it. Um, and then it went on, I think, a, a, a hiatus of a year or so uh, afterwards, and we reconvened after the pandemic. Um, your, in, in your intro, Billy, you talked about the, the point of the project being um, an Im improvement in the outlook for reduction in child poverty. Um, I think that presented um, an unusual journalistic challenge. You know, I think we're used to telling bad news. Journalists as a whole, you know, we we're um, we have a bad news bias. We, you know, we 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 don't write stories about the planes that don't crash, right? So I mean, it's just a, inherent in the practice of journalism in general is we highlight problems that people need to know about. Um, and I think that's particularly the case in poverty reporting, where the kind of default setting, if it, whether you're consciously thinking of it or not, is you identify a problem, and often it's a problem that's getting worse. So when you have a problem that's getting better, but is still a problem, um, uh, there was a sort of challenge in figuring out the, the right way to tell that and, and, and the right tone. So uh, it's actually interesting to me that you thought it was useful information and helpful. I'm not sure um, all social services advocates felt the same way. Uh, well, that's really interesting. And, and are you saying that because, um, and I'm just, I'm just speculating based on my own experience, I could be wrong, but are you saying that because uh, social services advocates often want to, as you were saying a moment ago, emphasize how bad the problem is because that helps drive awareness and fundraising and so forth? Is that the reason? I think that's probably part of the reason, and I, but I also think their daily experience is encountering people in deep need. So, I mean, if you're spending, even if child poverty falls almost 60%, as we found that it did, if you're still serving, there's still 8 million poor children in the country. And if you're a, a direct services organization or an advocacy organization, you're, you're seeing all kinds of need constantly. Even when people who aren't technically in poverty by the government's definition are often in great need, so it may not echo with their uh, their direct experience, and it may not um, the framing may not echo with the way they see um, 
a useful message being framed, uh, you know, the, the concern would be that you're undermining the urgency of the po- of the problem by showing progress. I, I, I think the counter concern is if, well, the counter risk is if you own if you ignore the progress, you you may feed into the sense that the programs aren't working. There's no use in doing. It. You express a sort of futile. You know, may, may make make the fight against poverty seem futile if nothing ever seems to get better. So um, I think what we were trying to find was a, a framing in which we could say the progress was being made, uh, identify some of the reasons, particularly um, in the strengthening of the safety net, but without trying to convey a message that um, yeah, child poverty had been solved as a problem. Yeah. And, and, and as you know, I guess at least my philosophy, and I've seen this, you know, on many occasions, is uh, two things can be true at once, right? The need, the need could be enormous, uh, which it is, uh, and powerful and compelling, uh, and progress can be made. And uh, I have found doing this work that, you know, that there are so many kind of bad news stories in the world, uh, whether it's war or disease or famine or uh, or just seemingly intractable issues, and uh, to give people a sense that progress is possible, that, that um, some of these solutions actually make a difference. I found it to be very important. Uh, R- Renee, what, what does the collaboration look like from your point of view? And is this uh, is this typical for folks who are not behind the scenes with the way journalists and research institutions work together or don't? Is this a, is this a typical collaboration or uh, different from the usual? I think this was different from the usual. I've done... Um a couple of, of smaller partnerships with media in the past with um, NPR and a couple others. Uh, and this was much more collaborative. Jason brings this huge wealth of experience on child poverty. Um, so he, he was really bringing expertise to the t- table um, and and pushing us to to really be able to explain conundrums that we were um, figuring out along the way um, and not, he didn't stop poking until we could explain something in a way that everybody understood. Um, so it was a very collaborative process. At some points we were having calls multiple days a week. Um, and I think it was, it was, informative in both directions. We helped Jason think through who it might make sense to interview to bring the story to life. He helped us make um, make some of those, you know, his, his expertise informed some of those crucial research decisions along the way. Very, yeah, collaborative. I agree with Renee. It was, it was- it was very different from for me as well. I don't think I've uh, experienced anything like it in my thirty something years at the at the New York Times. Uh, usually, somebody does a story and you write about. I mean, does a study and you write about their study as opposed to um, collaborating with them to design the study. So we got to ask some of the questions early on. Um, yeah, not all of them could be answered by the data, but we got to, you know, we got to shape the study as it went along and with a, a eye towards what our readers would be interested in. So um, that was a lot of fun. I want to just read uh, the at least your lead from September 11th, 2022. Um, and 
give our listeners a sense of uh, at least why I'm so excited about uh, this story and this collaboration. Um, here's how it went. For a generation or more, America's high levels of child poverty set it apart from other rich nations, leaving millions of young people lacking support as basic as food and shelter and been mounting evidence that early hardship leaves children poorer, sicker, and less educated as adults. But with little public notice and accelerating speed, America's children have become much less poor. A comprehensive news analysis shows that child poverty has fallen 59% since 1993, with need receding on nearly every front. And it goes on to specify how child poverty has fallen in every state. Uh, as we get into just kind of like the, the meat of uh, the, the reporting, Jason, what was the, I guess, what should we know about child poverty uh, before uh, you wrote this article? Uh, and I think a lot of this was influenced by the success of different social programs. What should we know about child poverty today? Can you paint a little bit of a picture for us? Well, Billy, I think you and I are probably... Um uh, of roughly the same generation in terms of thinking about poverty. Renee's, I think, <laughs> considerably younger. So uh, w if your vision of child poverty formed in the late 1980s, it tended to be that child poverty in America was incredibly high and intractable. That it just wasn't responsive to government initiatives. You know, the dominant political framing of the era was Ronald Reagan's quote, we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. You know, year after year, you would see these statistics come on and be more than one in four American children were poor. So this, 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 this was a kind of Gibraltar, you know, it just couldn't be moved. So to wake up a generation later and see that child poverty rates over the past generation had in fact plummeted was um, uh, uh, not, not only a narrow statistical revelation, but a, a, a change in a sense of what was possible. Um, I, I don't think you can fully feel how remarkable a development this is if you hadn't lived through the late 1980s in that sense that um, you know, children in America were um, at, at incredible risk and nothing was helping. And, and just what's it look like to be a poor child in America today? Well, to be a low-income child in America today, I think you have opportunities for much more government aid than you would have a generation ago, um, especially through the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit. Um, there's much more health, you know, many fewer uninsured kids, much more opportunities to get um uh, health insurance and an expansion of the uh, food safety net as well through SNAP, through um, school lunches. Um, you know, you so the the prospects for low income families with children to get government aid have expanded significantly over the past generation. Your question was what it's what is it like to be a poor child, and you know it's bad. It's you know, there's still 8 million kids below the poverty line and it's a low poverty line and it's a meager, unstable existence um, filled with all kinds of um, not only physical hardship, but emotional stress that results from that. Renee, at Child Trends, you look at this from a lot of different angles and perspectives, education, healthcare, uh, other socioeconomic challenges that kids face. Uh, what would you want 
folks to know about child poverty in America today? Yeah, if I had to boil it down to one word, it would actually be one that Jason used, which is instability. So poverty doesn't define a child, doesn't define a family, but it makes it a lot harder. Um, So poverty can lead to instability in terms of housing, moving a lot, which leads to, you know, changing schools a lot, instability in schedules based on parents' work schedules, for example, um, and instability in terms of food. So I think in instability is really the the theme for me for for poverty today. Um, and Jason, one of the things you uh, wrote when you were reporting on this was that um, although it represents major progress, uh, you said it's drawn surprisingly little notice, even among policy experts. Um, and so for me, that begs the question as to why what your hypothesis is. This is not so much a research or a data question, I guess, as much as a political question. But why is that the case? There's several ways to answer that. Part of it is um, there's now two government. There's a statistical answer to that, which is that there's two government measures of poverty. There's the so-called official measure of poverty and the supplemental measure of poverty. Um, the latter counts safety net programs much better than the former, but the former tends to be more commonly used. So the fact that it, uh, an alternative uh, measure of poverty captures the trend best and a lot, a lot of people who refer to the poverty rate don't use that. That's part of the answer. I think part of the answer is that the decline is accelerated in the second half of the teens. So um, it, it went down a lot in the 90s, then it plateaued, and then it started going down again um, more recently. So there's a kind of, uh, hasn't fully permeated, I think, the consciousness yet. And I think part of it's probably what you and I were talking about before, which is a sense that you know it's a concern that highlighting progress against poverty could undermine um, a sense of urgency about continuing to fight the problem. Let's talk a little bit about the the child tax credit, uh, which I heard you say on an interview, Jason, was, uh, I think you said that's kind of a, I don't know, a wonky term for it. It's really, it was really kind of a guaranteed uh, income for families with kids and uh, to some degree, the making of a, of a policy revolution. Um, how did the child tax credit come to pass? And the bigger question I have is, how could it expire? I, when I, I, I just had assumed that once the data came out about how many kids had been lifted above the poverty line, uh, that we would never go back. But first talk about how it, 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 it became law. I know it was part of a much, much larger bill, and maybe it just wasn't um, visible. Maybe it kind of got snuck in. Um, and then and how could we possibly let it expire? Well, the history of it is it's, it, it, it started as a tax break for middle income, a small tax break for middle income families in the late 1990s. Um, by the 2017 in the Trump, the big Trump tax bill, it became much a much larger tax credit and it was extended up the income distribution, not down the income distribution to families with uh, incomes up to $400,000 a year. So not only for middle-class families, but for for very affluent families. And it left out about a third of the children, the poorest third of the children from getting it. So, you know, it, it was um, a little like having a policy bullseye around it, you know, as it got bigger and more valuable and left out more poor people. um, The unfairness of it uh, to people on the left became more evident. 
um, and a movement grew to extend the tax credit down the income ladder to um, uh, lower income families, which meant making it not really about taxes at all because those families didn't have tax um, liability, but to make it just an income subsidy. And that's what happened during the pandemic for one year. What's your um, what's your take on just why we let it expire and whether what what is its future, including what are the prospects of um, of similar tax actions at the state level? I you're right that um, the when Congress passed it, advocates hoped that it would become so compelling that they were only able to pass it for a one for one year to begin with, and the thought was it would become so compelling, so um, uh, crucial that Congress couldn't let it expire. Um, and uh, you know, to, I think to many people's amazement, um, it sort of expired um, uh, with, with very little public outcry. That, that theory didn't hold. Um, oh, yeah, one explanation, I think, is that... The- what, what was your theory at the time? Like, what did you think? I'm just curious. I don't know that I had an expectation at the time. Um, in retrospect, I think there was so much else going on in the pandemic that it kind of got lost. There were stimulus payments, there were you know, rental relief, all kinds of program expansions. So I don't think it, uh, I think it got framed as a, in people's minds as just a form of pandemic aid. Um, that's That's part of it. But I also think it points to the political alienation of the, of low income families. Um, you know, when I, I went out to, to West Virginia to report part of the project that um, Renee and I um, collaborated on and was, didn't hear a, a word of complaint about its expiration among the very people who were most benefiting. Um, they were either, half aware, not fully aware, just got it kind of mixed up with other tax benefits they were getting, didn't pay attention to politics, just felt alienated, didn't vote, felt alienated from the whole system. Um, to me, part, you know, part of the message I thought was just how little political power low-income families have in the country. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I, I know um, from our point of view uh, and a share of strength, particularly over the last uh, 10 or 12 years separate from the child tax credit, we've done a lot of work around trying to help families that are uh, eligible for different types of benefits. In our case, it had been a lot of work around school meals, school breakfast, summer meals. Uh, we've tried to help families uh, either knock down or overcome whatever barriers stand between them and those benefits. And when the child tax credit passed, we thought this would be a, uh, a another version of um, what we started to think of as our sweet spot. And we organized efforts in a number of different states to help uh, make sure families who were eligible were doing what they needed to do to get the tax credit. And uh, the level of awareness was very low. I mean, it's just I'm just echoing what you just said, uh, Jason, and it became much harder uh, to get families to take advantage of this than, um, than we thought it would be. And it was just, uh, you know, for me... Uh, the, the crucial vote in its expiration, uh, the crucial opponent was Joe Manchin, the de- yes. uh, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Democrat, who's the lone Democrat opponent of the of making this permanent. So I was in, you know, West Virginia, Senator Manchin, and had long talk. One of the, the, the main family in that story was Cecilia and um, Jaron Jackson. Um, 
he, the, the, Jaron Jackson, um, went on and on about what a great policy the child tax credit was, and then went on and on about what a great senator Joe Manchin was. And when I said, "Well, it was Manchin that blocked the tax credit," he said, "Well, he must have his reasons. I still, you know, I trust him. I trust his instincts. He's a good guy." Um, by the way, I don't think either one of the Jacksons votes. So, um, yeah, the, the Cecilia Jackson, the wife didn't pay any attention to it, doesn't like politics, says it's about too much conflict. Um, the husband follows it avidly, but doesn't vote. Um, yeah, so in either case, they you know, both of them thought the child tax credit was a great thing for their family. Both of them lived in West Virginia. Neither one of, it was clear that Joe Manchin wouldn't pay a political price for opponent, uh, opposing this policy, even though it was popular among low-income families. Uh, what makes me kind of you know nuts about this 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 broader issue and what I feel like our challenges and the bridge that we need to build is and, and I've seen it you know over and over and over again in our work at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign is uh, you know almost nobody's against feeding a hungry child everybody will be, do whatever they have to do to help a child get a meal uh, but to get to the understanding that one of the most effective things you can do to help feed hungry child is, is, is to help his or her parents or caregivers or, or what have you, um, that becomes a bridge too far for folks, but it's, um, you know, without it, we're just, we're going to be in the emergency food assistance, uh, business for a long, long time. Uh, Renee, I wanted to ask you of, of the, the different social safety net, uh, measures that you've seen that you've researched that you think have been effective, whether it's child tax credit or SNAP, um, which we used to call food stamps, uh, the WIC program, um, which ones do you think are uh, playing the most important role today? In terms of absolute magnitude, um, it's the earned income tax credit. And explain, explain that for folks because not everybody will understand what it is. Yeah. So the earned income tax credit is a tax credit for low to middle income families where uh, when you file taxes, you get a lump sum back based on your income, household size, number of kids, things like that. And it can be pretty substantial. It can be up to, I think, about $6,000. Um, but there are major limitations with that, that the child tax credit, the expansion to the child tax credit actually addressed. Um, so one is this idea of refundability. With the earned income tax credit, you have to make a certain amount of money in order to qualify for it as opposed to the the child tax credit, which is more inclusive, like Jason was saying, um, it it helps the the people with the the least income. The um, there's also differences in terms of who is eligible based on immigration status. So with the earned income tax credit, if a child is a citizen, but one of their parents doesn't have a social security number, they don't get any benefit from it. Whereas with the expanded child tax credit, it's based on the child's uh, immigration status. So the EITC, the earned income tax credit, is the the largest anti-poverty program we have as a country alone. It reduces child poverty rates by almost a quarter, um, but it's got major limitations. And the the temporary expansion to the child tax credit actually addressed some of those. Uh, and how do you think of, or the, what's the best way to describe kind of the future prospects for the earned income tax credit? 
I, I always think of it as fairly safe and stable, at least as it is, even though improvements need to be made. But uh, what's your view? Yeah, the the earned income tax credit, I think, is pretty universally popular. Um, it has a work requirement kind of baked into it, and in that if you, you don't have income, you don't get the earned income tax credit. Um, and so that makes it popular across the aisle. Yeah, I think that I agree with Renee. I think the big political divide um, around tax credits is whether uh, ha- has to do with the work, work requirements. How um, how, how tightly t- uh, uh, to tie the credits to uh, working, and so the earned income tax credit, um, you know, is as Renee said, only go- it's a subsidy only for low uh, low income workers, and I think the debate for in future child poverty policy is um, the conservatives will say that's in aid needs to be tied to work in order to keep people. The only way out of poverty is to work your way out of poverty. We want to incentivize families to work. We don't want to give them um, cash for not working. This would be a backward step going back to um, what they see as a failed welfare system. And progressives would say, um, work is a value, but um, you, you know, millions of children still live in families that aren't um, uh, getting getting um, the full value of, of these plans. And um, if you um, leave them out, you leave out the most vulnerable. One of the things I want to make sure we touch on before we leave this conversation uh, is what the research and your reporting tells us about the racial and ethnic disparities uh, impacting uh child poverty in particular, what's the most important thing we should know there? I think there the the main message is that they're real and they're not budging. Uh, So Black and Latino kids are nearly three times as likely to live in poverty as white kids. Asian kids are about one, just over one and a half times as likely to live in poverty as white kids. And those, those rates haven't budged since 1993. So we saw this huge historic decline in child poverty over the past generation, but the inequities in who experiences that poverty are exactly the same. But, but the, the decline itself cut across all demographics, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was actually remarkable. We saw remarkably similar patterns in the reduction in poverty across groups. Uh, when you look by race, ethnicity, when you look by immigration status, and when you look by uh, family structure, the number of parents that a kid lives with, the declines in child poverty were remarkably consistent. So there's there's two ways to think about that. Um, one is that, great, poverty is going down for everybody. The other is that, great, poverty is going down for everybody, but our disparities aren't changing. We're not helping the kids who need it the most anymore now than we were a generation ago. I know we're running out of time here. Um, are, are, are you too optimistic, pessimistic, neutral about um, the progress we're going to be able to make against child poverty? I, 
I don't know if you could hear, I just dramatically exhaled. That was a dramatic sigh. <laughs> that, that basically summarizes my, my, my feelings, particularly in the current political climate. And uh, I've, I've been working around the edges of politics for a long time, and I keep thinking it's going to get better soon, but it's it's been going in the wrong direction. But, but nevertheless, I remain an optimist, partly because of your research and, and your reporting, Jason. Um, Billy, you asked earlier, what does child poverty look like? What, was, what does poverty look like from a child's perspective and what it, difference were the programs making on the ground. Let me just circle back just real quickly to the school lunch program. Um, I think throughout the pandemic, lo- lots of people, including me, came to get a, a better appreciation of the importance of the school lunch program. And particularly with the move to making all the kids in, in schools eligible, um, you know, the families I talked to, the, the earned income tax credit, as we were, as Renee and I were both struggling to explain, is very complicated and kind of opaque. And maybe that's part of its political strength is, you know, it, it, it can't be um, uh, demonized because lots of people just, it's under the radar. Um, the school lunch program, on the other, I think, on the other hand, maybe benefits from its just simplicity. As you were saying, nobody wants to see a child go hungry. And um, child poverty statistics are a, you know, there's lots of ways to measure hardship. Poverty rates are just one of them. But I have a, a, a sense that the school lunch program um, may be even more important than it sh- poverty statistics alone would make it show. I mean, the families that I talked to really expressed relief that their kids could get those one or two meals a day uh, at school and said it made a big difference economically to their families. You know, Jason, you, you put your finger, I think, on the, on the reason that I am optimistic about this. And I'll um, tell you something that I've shared before on, on this podcast. But for me, it was so compelling. And it actually came before the pandemic and before even a lot of the flexibilities and waivers that made it easier uh, to, to make sure that kids got meals. And what we had seen in a number of communities around the around the country were communities where there were uh, extraordinarily high rates of, of poverty, uh, where there were high rates of parents who were or caregivers who were undocumented and could not make uh, great wages, um, very high rates of, um, of, of food insecurity. Uh, but uh, kids in school districts were getting breakfast, um, and we'd done a lot over the last few years to close the gap between the number of kids who get lunch and get breakfast. Uh, they were getting uh, breakfast. They were getting lunch. Uh, many schools have an after-school snack, which is also a after-school snack or supper, which is also a, uh, essentially a federal entitlement program. It's harder for the schools to avail themselves of because they've got to keep staff there longer and so forth. But where this existed, uh, these kids, although still living below the poverty line and struggling with a lot of different issues, we're not hungry. The set of ingredients that at one point would have been like determinants, almost a guarantee that, you know, if you heard that kids were existing under these conditions, you would assume they were hungry. They weren't. Uh, and as a result of not being hungry, all of the things that you would hope to correlate that with that were, were correlating. Uh, test scores were better. Attendance was better. Tardiness was down. Disciplinary infractions uh, were down. And so, um, you know, I, I began this conversation by saying that, you know, Hunger is a symptom of a deeper issue, and ultimately we've got to solve that deeper issue. But there are, are ways that you can actually mitigate uh, at least the consequences of, of hunger so that kids have a chance to be healthy. They have a chance to, to learn. Even in some of the communities that, um, that suffer the most from populations living 
in such a large extent below the poverty line. So um, I, I am optimistic, and I do think that that is a you know that 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 school lunch and school meals are only going to become more accessible. We've seen five states just in the last year or so make them universal, including Massachusetts, Maine, uh, California, uh, and others. So still a lot of work to do. Uh, as we wrap up, just tell us what, what's next between the two of you. What are you guys scheming? What are you, what are you plotting next? I think we're um, plotting a story on the um, uh, access among children of immigrants to the safety net. And um, the differences, the, the obstacles, the barriers um, that uh, low-income children of immigrants, mostly citizen children of immigrants, face in getting government aid compared to other children. When should we be looking out for that? Any idea yet? A few weeks, I hope. Okay. All right. You heard yeah, it here we are first. Act- actively no. plotting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> There's a con- active conspiracy underway. Yeah. Uh, well, I love the conspiracy, and I just want to say thanks to you, Renee Ryberg, and Child Trends for just the incredible work you do. It's probably for a lot of Americans, it's you know below the surface, and uh, they they don't always know where this really uh, great and compelling and uh, accurate and reliable research is coming from. Uh, and Jason DeParle for um, giving it a platform, um, and in many cases, the front page of the New York Times. Uh, which uh, I guess I'm of the generation that still thinks that's the most important platform that there is. Uh, but it's, uh, it's really made a difference. And for those of us who are, you know, working uh, on the ground uh, and in communities, uh, trying to help people understand that uh, progress can be made, uh, the work that the, the two of you have done together has been really powerful. And I just wanted to say thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for drawing attention to this issue. Uh, Our guests today have been Jason DePerle from the New York Times and Renee Ryberg from Child Trends. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. It's produced by District Productive and our producer, Paul Woodle. Uh, And I want to thank the entire Share Our Strength team and all my colleagues at Share Our Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign uh, for the work that goes not just into the podcast, but uh, the work that goes into reducing hunger across America every day. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore.